the following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. <laughs> I'm delighted to be here. You beat Alan to the show. I'm here. Thank you so much for joining us. To me? Well, yeah, I already, I already thanked her. I was thanking you for showing up. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm here. I am uh, back in the hemisphere. It's actually 7 p.m. Eastern time for you. It's closer to 4 for Beatty. Well, wait a second. It's actually closer to... 8 a.m. tomorrow for me. Oh, have you still not switched over? Are you kidding me? I got home Friday night. Oh, man. It's been 48 hours. In fact, it's been less than 48 hours since I landed. After a 27-hour plane ride through 13 time zones. What's your big jet lag solution? Do you have, like, some sort of cure? Yeah. Uh, expose yourself to as much natural sunlight as possible. And when you land, make sure that you conform to or switch over to the, the current time zone as quickly as possible. You mean you don't take your socks and shoes off in the hotel room and curl your toes like they do in Die Hard? No, don't do that. What you can do is take off your pants and expose <laughs> the backs of your knees to natural sunlight. Oh, I th wow, I thought that was going to go somewhere completely different. <laughs> no, but apparently you have some sort of light receptors in the backs of your knees. What? And, yes, and if you expose that to to natural sunlight, you uh, will uh, set your reset your circadian rhythms a lot more quickly. Yeah, but you're not supposed to take off your pants in the terminal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, stand by. Here we go. Here we go. Live from Studio 3B, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes, Spotify, and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. She's orange juice for the ears, according to one documentary. We'll introduce you to pioneering singer-songwriter Beatty Wolf. She's worked with NASA and the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. She's made music interactive in 360 degrees, and her compositions have been beamed into space. And apparently we're looking for some jet lag cures. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. We're getting ever so closer to CES 2020, my friend. I know. Well, uh, let's see. Today is, uh, we're recording this on the 17th of November. We leave when? The 9th of, uh, the 9th of January or the 8th of January? If we leave the 9th of January, my friend, we will have missed the entire thing by two days. You don't read your memos. No, I don't. I Listen, I'm so <laughs> jet lagged. Oh, I bet you are. January 5th is when we are wheels down at McCarran International Airport in the city of Sin. And uh, we'll immediately drop our stuff, head off to one of those preview uh, events. Mm. And the thing is, is as we mentioned last time, we've uh, managed to secure not only the flights, as well as the hotels, courtesy of our GoFundMe campaign and all of the support we're getting on Patreon and PayPal. We've got an update on the GoFundMe. I'm, I'm all pins and needles. $385 richer than last time we spoke. Oh, oh, I, I, okay. I apologize for my cynicism. And so what that means is the additional cash I paid on top of the flights to get you the extra leg room for the flights there and back. We were under, underwater by 400 bucks. We were underwater by just shy of 400 bucks. We're now even again. Oh, good. Which means we're still... 
paying for our own uh, Ubers at this point and and food. Right. Uh, so if you'd like to continue to support the show, as has uh, Stephen Robinson, who donated 10 bucks via GoFundMe, we got a $100 donation via Anonymous. Oh, well, okay. Explain why that was self-defeating. Well, that's what I was going to say, is it is a little self-defeating, because if had Anonymous shared with us who they were, our patron-in-residence, Victor Biggio, would have sent Anonymous... One of our miracle travel mugs of traveling, which, using the power of science, keeps hot beverages hot and cold beverages cold. Don Demsack, however, did donate 100 bucks, so we're going to send Don off a miracle travel mug of traveling, as we will for Chase and Simmons as well. We also want to say thank you to Scott Tosh, who donated 25 bucks, an anonymous donor uh, threw 50 bucks our way, so thank you to you as well. We also want to say thank you to Crystal Brown John, who donated, as did Marty Steele. Uh, he, he donated four times over the course of the last little while. I think every time he finds five bucks in a coat pocket somewhere... He just throws it our way. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Thomas Foster, Mike and Marilyn Benninger, uh, Chef Mike and Marilyn Benninger, Rob Rimmer, uh, Black Lab, Laura Heron, Jasper DeMann, Grace Hugh, Irene Mallory, Michael Hollick, Mike Tweedy, Grant Ridge, Craig Aiken, Janet Hawkins, Craig Schlegelmilch, and uh, Tim Heron, Matthew Bartram, all Big Shot contributors. 33 people so far have been willing to open their wallets to make sure that you and I get to CES to learn about all the new stuff for 2020. Well, we better deliver. Well, I've got already us booked for a private booth tour of the Samsung display. Ooh, okay, good. And Samsung always takes over like a massive section of CES for everything they're doing. And so it'll be interesting to find out what's new in 2020 for them. Uh, it might be a little difficult to show you just how good the new TVs might be. You know, it's, uh, here's an 8K TV shot on an iPhone. Mm, yeah. doesn't exactly show it all off. No, but there's some... I, I mean, you know, 4K is fine right now because nobody is broadcasting in any resolution higher than that. Although NHK for the Olympics in Tokyo next year or in Japan next year are, um, they're going to be in 8K. But who has an 8K nobody. television? Nobody. How, how much is an 8K television? Um, how big do you want uh, standard, you know, 50. You need 75 inches. inches these days. You need 75 inches, do you? At least minimum. Samsung will sell you a 55 inch 8K UDH HDR TV for $3,500. What? 8K for. Really? That's amazing. They got a 65K one or a 65 inch one for 4500 bucks. I had no idea these things had come down in like granted no. $3500 for a TV is bonkers as far as I'm concerned. But considering I probably paid about half that for a 29-inch tube-based TV back in the olden days. Yeah, it's uh, that's that's really All right, quite all amazing. right, you got me. We'll go see. Yeah, we got to check it out. Uh you of course are going to want to check out everything car related. Yes. So maybe we need to check back in with our friends over at BMW to see what they've got in the autonomous vehicle department. Uh, yeah, autonomous vehicle. Also, uh, infotainment systems. That's another other yeah. big thing. And, of course, we've got our big sponsor, APMA, uh, the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association. Not only are they letting us use their booth to broadcast live, they're going to give us a tour of one of the autonomous vehicles they'll have at the booth. And I just found out while I was schmoozing with them at the board of directors dinner recently. 
they um, also have an autonomous vehicle going up and down the strip. So maybe maybe that's maybe where we, we do the interview. We go for a ride. We go for a ride. So if you want to help us uh, get to CES 2020, or at least feed us when we get to CES 2020, <laughs> yeah. go to geeksandbeats.com. Right at the top of the page, there's a button where you can click to support the show and uh, help us along that way. Oh, uh, Samsung will sell you a 98-inch 8K TV for only $100,000. Uh, I remember when the first Panasonic had a 100-inch TV, and I think it was 1080p. And that thing was was seventy thousand dollars plus. On Patreon, uh, Tyler Bergsma just deleted his one dollar an episode donation. We're down oh. a buck, my friend. Oh dear. All right. Maybe, well, maybe he moved over to PayPal, where it's a recurring payment thing. You don't even have to think about it. Maybe. Okay. Well, let's hope so. October eighth, twenty nineteen, a documentary called "Orange Juice for the Ears" was released in London. It's a documentary about our next guest. I'm BT Wolf. I'm a musician, songwriter, and I love to create tangible formats for my albums. When I was about seven or eight, I discovered my parents' record collection. I just saw opening these records up as kind of like entering into the worlds of these albums, and that was the gateway into this world. I just couldn't accept that my albums wouldn't have these worlds. Instead, they would just be these kind of intangible experiences floating around somewhere. And so I was just determined to create a tangible album but for this digital age. This was the first innovation, and the idea with this was to kind of turn your phone into a magic box, like the, the sort of 80s viewfinder. You know, raw space, I haven't talked about how it worked in terms of the experience of the actual anti-stream, so I could mention that. And then the space broadcast. Yeah, please tell <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> oh, man. It's like, give me the energy. Giant antennas, like monstrous eyes and ears, straining. How do you then create something that triggers a different pathway? You know, kind of being a kid and excited about uncovering this thing. And that's what I'm always trying to do with these vinyl experiences. If we were still as excited about albums as I was when I was eight, I wouldn't be doing any of the tech stuff. I want people to remember why they love music and realize that they can still have that with music today. You know, I, I believe we have to keep the bar high. We have to keep on making the best art possible. My fingers are so cold. <laughs> oh my God. She was named one of Wired's 22 people changing the world. You never made it onto a list like that, did you? Me? No. <laughs> no I don't belong on any list. I, those lists always got me. I, when I with the, the top 30 under 30, I, I always was champing at the bit to be on a list like that. And then, of course, you, you make it into your, your late 30s and you're thinking, oh, well, maybe I've got top 40 under 40. You know, they don't have a top 50 under 50. No, if, if you haven't made any list by that time, you're a failure. She is a pioneering singer-songwriter. She is an artist who has beamed her music into space, been appointed a UN Women Role for Innovation, and held an acclaimed solo exhibition of her world-first album designs at the Victorian Albert Museum. Joining us now from, I guess, a, a, a Pacific time zone is a Beatty Wolf. Good to have you with us. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. 
Now, where are you that has you Pacific bound? Um, I'm in LA right now, looking out at a sort of sun-dappled hill. <laughs> oh, it's not on fire. No, it's it, amazingly, no. <laughs> I actually have one jet lag solution. Oh? Yeah, so it's this New Zealand uh, form- formula that is called One Above. I've seen it. <laughs> yeah. I Look, I don't know what you think, but it works for me. Like every time I've taken a transatlantic flight, somehow, maybe it's the mental psychosomatic effect, but um, it, yeah, I think it works. I recommend it. Awesome. All right. I have, I have to go back to Singapore in uh, nine days. Have you tried it? I, I have, but I didn't do it properly. If you have to really read the, the uh, directions on the package and follow them to the letter if it's going to work. And uh, I, I bought mine at an airport, and by the time I had it in hand, it was, it was too late. Oh, no. <laughs> that sounds counterintuitive, that if you needed a jet lag solution, much like if you needed a solution for a hangover... You want the instructions to be as simple and straightforward as possible. Uh, if we're talking about the same thing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so you just you put it in water and you drink it the day of and while you're on the flight and when you land. Um, and it's essentially birch and electrolytes and various minerals. But I, yeah, I found it worked every time. Well, I'm going to have to try again. <laughs> so you launched in October of this year uh, a protest art project from green to red. And you've got a music video that uses historical data to visualize the impact that carbon dioxide has on our environment. Have you really settled in as to which career you want? Because it seems like you're doing them all at once. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, look, it's a very good point. I think for me, from a very young age, when I started writing songs and when I discovered my parents' record collection, and that unlocked this whole world for me of, you know, discovery and... Um, these art forms and storytelling. And I just became totally obsessed, you know, with what worlds I could create for my albums. I guess I saw being a musician as very much a sort of 360 degree experience where, you know, you'd be creating the artwork, you'd be creating um, these narratives, you'd have these sort of multi-sensory experiences because that's how I saw vinyl and that's how I saw um, the early way that music was packaged. So I, I don't know. I don't feel that I'm doing anything that radical. I just think I'm bringing back a lot of the components that existed in the beginning. And I feel like being an artist has to be, a, you know, it has to be about a lot more than, you know, gratification and patting yourself on the back. You have to be doing work that contributes in some ways. Um, and And I think it has to be about, the long term and the long now rather than making stuff for the day. So, uh, yeah, I just feel right now the biggest issue we're facing is the climate. So I've been thinking about doing something for you know a number of years. I had this song from Green to Red, which I wrote in 2006 after seeing An Inconvenient Truth. And initially I didn't think I needed to record it because I thought, well, everyone's going to see this film and we'll solve you know, we'll be on a a better path, you know, sort of pretty soon. But obviously that didn't happen. And now it's got to a point where it really is critical. So I I wanted to try and make some sort of statement about that. What is exactly uh, the world's first 3D interactive album app? (laughs) It's a funny thing because 
when my weird and hopefully wonderful designs come out, there's always a longer name initially because it takes a while before you figure out how to actually explain it to people, you know? So at the beginning, it was a 3D interactive album app. It was a 3D vinyl for your phone that you could open up and have this sort of very traditional vinyl experience with on your phone. Um, but then you could slot your phone into this little Japanese device and it turned it into a theater for the palm of your hand and essentially made your phone into this kind of magic box like the 80s viewfinder. And that was, you know, 2012, that was the first proper innovation that I did. And it was because I'd grown up with, you know, the physical music experience and when things had moved digital and it was time for my first album release, the idea of it just being an iTunes download was so depressing to me. It's like, no, there has to be another way of combining the, the best of the old and the best of the new. So seeing that everyone was now on their phone listening to music, I wanted to turn the phone into something that was actually magical and interesting and also nostalgic. What kind of pickup did you have on that? How many people downloaded it and, and, and did people use it in the intended way? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how they would use it in an, in the unintended way. Um, no, so that was, you know, that was back when very few people had apps. Um, I'd actually done an app prior to that, which was for my first EP, Burst, and, and that was just, you know, artwork and music. And that was at a time, I think it was just me, Coldplay, and one other band that, you know, had thought to do anything like that. Um, but with... With eight, with the 3D um, theater for the palm of your hand, um, I ended up doing this this kind of tour with Apple and uh, going and you know speaking and performing at their theater stores and you know doing a few th different things with them. So its pickup was actually really good. You know, Wired and GQ did a, a premiere of it, and you know I I was an independent artist. I'd just come up with this quirky idea. You know, I didn't have a publicist or any team particularly. So um, it got a really amazing sort of reception. And I think based on that, not because I felt like, oh, you know, look, people think it's great. I've got to do more of this. But seeing that excitement that people had um, to think that you could look at music differently and you could look at, you know, a more tangible album experience in the digital age, that was really what gave me the the sort of, impetus to just keep on exploring well you use the word tangible but it's not really because there's no physical thing we're talking augmented reality here yeah well no so the thing with the first album is it was it, it was the phone but it was a you know it was like this viewmaster attachment for your phone so your phone turned into kind of like an 80s Viewmaster with this additional component. So in that way, it was this tangible experience. And then, if, and then I did, you know, a lyric book that was launched at the oldest rare booksellers in the world and a physical, you know, record, a vinyl record. For the second album, it was a reimagining of the album Jacket, literally as a woven jacket cut by the tailor who dressed Bowie, Hendrix, Jagger, out of fabric which was woven with my music that was recorded in the room where McCartney wrote Eleanor Rigby, Hendrix wrote The Wind Cries Mary. And then the other part of that was a deck of cards that looked like a cassette tape 
which you opened up and you had a card for each track of the album, lyrics, artwork. You tap those cards to your phone and via an invisible chip, it would instantly bring up all the content associated with that particular track. So, you know, the, the jacket, the deck of cards, you know, they're moving into raw space. It was always about exploring tangible art forms, but that connected you with, you know, this immediacy that digital could bring. Tell me about the challenges of building your music into something that is really kind of tangible in, as I say, that augmented reality sort of way, um, making visual and physical something that's musical is not new. We've been making music videos forever now, it seems, but this is very different. Yeah, I, it's funny for me. It doesn't feel different. It feels, I, I know it is different, but it just feels really in some ways obvious because, you know, you look at William Blake, a poet and or seemingly just a poet, but someone who was engraving these art forms and creating these, these visual representations of his poems that gave them greater meaning and this kind of a backdrop of imagery. And I feel like, you know, we lost a lot by making music intangible and sort of separating it from this arc, this art form, this whole world. So I'm, I guess I'm just thinking about how you bring back the world in a way that, you know, creates a sort of focused experience around it that that sort of captures the imagination that makes people want to symbolically sit down with an album again because i think there are three things that you need for something to imprint and go deep and stay with you forever and i think that's tangibility ceremony and storytelling so those are the three things that i try and bring into any experience that i create because i i think they're really important what do you mean by ceremony? Ritual? Ritual, headspace, you know, a focused experience like silence, um, concentration, you know, spending now over 100 hours in the what was the quietest room on earth, which was the space where Helen Keller said she experienced silence for the first time. Um, and that's where I created this physical record stream, um, this kind of anti-stream experience where a record player was playing my album on repeat 24 hours for a week. People could log in via the 360 cameras and explore the room in that pure, you know, in that focused way and listen to the music in this pure focused way. They couldn't shuffle, they couldn't fast forward, but then using live animation, the lyrics would be streaming out of the vinyl, the artwork was surrounding people in real time and taking them into the visual landscape of each track. So again, it's this blend of real physical space and that room kind of being the ultimate listening room and also the ultimate room of ceremony that was sort of setting the stage for this um, anti-stream experience that, you know, again, had the best of the old, which a physical record player, this focus, this, you know, silence, but then was using AR to bring the lyrics and the artwork to life around you as this kind of Fantasia experience. Hmm. What was it like to spend time with NASA? It was great. Um, it was... Like you're talking to a couple of space nerds here, so oh, okay. we're, we're envious. <laughs> so yeah, I did a talk about my work at JPL. Um, I had Dr. Randy Wesson help with 
sort of advising on this space chamber that I was building for the V&A as part of my solo exhibition. Hold it. Hang on. A space chamber? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, please elaborate. Yeah. Well, so so the last part of the the last part of the story um, for raw space. After I'd created this anti-stream, I then did a space broadcast with Robert Wilson, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering cosmic background radiation and proving the validity of the Big Bang theory. And he and I did a beam, a space beam of my music into space using the horn antenna that he used to pick up cosmic background. In any particular direction? Tau Sedai? Uh, Proxima B? Where? <laughs> well, I mean... Yeah, honestly, we just pointed the horn up and we... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And somewhere out there, there's an alien picking it up on the other end. So yeah. if we're visited, it's distinctly possible we've got either you to credit or you to blame, depending on whether or not they come in peace. I know. Or they've been listening to your music without paying for the appropriate rights. Terrible. So cheeky. Yeah, so I, it's now based on um, Bob's last, uh, our last conversation. It's halfway to Proxima Centauri. Um, but yeah, we, we did this space broadcast. It was about two and a half years ago. And then I wanted to figure out a way of being able to take people back into the anti-stream experience without them having to put on headsets because I hate headsets. Um, and you know, when I did that, that was, you know, two and a half, three years ago. And that was the first time, you know, live 360 had been done live 360 AR had ever been attempted. And actually, the only reason it was it was possible was because Eric Schmidt had seen a description I'd sent Bell Labs of the Vision and was like, this is the coolest thing. YouTube has to be compatible for this. So they actually brought the platform forward to be able to support raw space at the time. Um, so, at, so the reason I say that is this was right at the, you know, right when people were excited about VR and AR. And I still felt bad about putting these headsets on because I just I just just didn't like them so the idea with the space chamber was a way of taking people back into that anti-stream and it was a NASA grade mylar wrapped anechoic chamber that people could enter and listen to the music with that same audio setup that we had in the Bell Labs chamber okay then, wait l let me just stop you here mm -hmm. listening to music in an anechoic chamber mm -hmm. that's you know, the, the, the deadest, quietest possible environment for listening to music. What does it sound like? When you have no echo. Yeah. It's absolutely incredible. And it's incredible for a couple of reasons. I mean, so to put it in context, when I first went into, you know, the, what was the original wedge-based anechoic chamber, which is the one Bell Labs had, where they discovered psychoacoustics and rogue frequencies, built the foil microphone, um, you know, this was really one of the oldest and and most historic um, spaces like that. And the engineers warned me that I could only stay in there, you know, 10 or 20 minutes because I would start to hear the blood, you know, running through my veins. And a lot of the engineers would, would need to take breaks. Um, and for some reason, it had the opposite effect on me. And I found it incredibly peaceful, incredibly calming and this sudden realization of just how much noise we have around us at any given point and how music has become part of that noise. It's become part of that background sort of experience. 
Um, so playing music in there, you know, and hearing no EQ, no audio enhancements, like the rawest sound imaginable, it was something that I found incredibly beautiful, even though technically it wasn't, you know, it was quite dry and imperfect. But that to me was beautiful because we're so used to airbrushing everything out and auto-tuning things to the point of, you know, them losing their humanity. And I sort of feel like we have to know how to use technology and what things to augment and what things to leave, you know, as raw as possible. Um, so for me, you know, the raw anechoic sound was, was really beautiful. I, I'm sorry, I interrupted you and you were telling this, this the story about Eric Schmidt. Well, so no, and then I was telling you the story about this space chamber. So the idea with the space chamber was people could enter in to this um, NASA grade Mylar wrapped room and they could hear the music um, in this, you know, anechoic environment. And then instead of using a headset, to re-enter the raw space anti-stream, they you we I, like I converted an old um, viewport, the kind that you would look out to see, you know that classic uh, binocular viewport that everyone knows how to engage with, from a grandparent to a kid. Um, so they would look through that, and then they could see the record, you know, come to life with the lyrics and the artwork. And I loved that because it was inclusive, and everyone knew how to engage with it and families could do it, you know, together. So when I had the exhibition at the VNA, the space chamber was, you know, one of the biggest pieces that was installed. And it was just amazing seeing how many people, you know, like loved it and just wouldn't get out of it. And and I and I think that's the idea, you know, I'm always trying to use technology as a sort of magic facilitator, but it's actually about using tech to reintroduce a more traditional experience around music you're giving bjork a run for her money that's for sure <laughs> what's next for beauty wolf a couple of things so the environmental protest piece you know we did a teaser at the barbican uh it was almost more like a trailer but now we have to build the entire experience which will also have a interactive installation to it so people will be able to interrogate the data and um, look into what's happening in the context of the timeline at any, any given point. Um, and we'll be doing a, a talk about that at South by next year, and then there'll be a few other places. Uh, it looks like we might be doing a sort of takeover in London of all of the, all of the screens uh, as a real awareness piece. And then separate from that, for my next record installation, it's going to be at one of America's um, top museums. I, I can't say where just yet, but the idea is I'll be using uh, code pioneered by Hedy Lamar to present a record as a secret communication system uh, where it will feel like people are walking around an old radio and discovering the secret channels and also leaving their own messages in the process. Hedy Lamar is someone who gets a lot of credit for a lot of different things, but a lot of people don't know that the wireless technology that we have today really wouldn't exist without her. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's incredible. And I feel like a big part of what I love is, you know, I, I still get amazed that people don't know Bell Labs or people don't know this particular anechoic chamber or Robert Wilson or the horn antenna. And 
there's something I really love about almost shining a light on some of these other, and not, I'm not saying that they need it, but just by, you know, using, you know, the magic, the resonance, the history of some of these other wonderful spaces in the project as also a way of sort of celebrating them. Um, and that was definitely the case with the, you know, this musical jacket that was made out of the room where Eleanor Rigby, The Wind Cries Mary, all these incredible songs had been written where Hendrix had lived, McCartney, Lennon, Yoko, Ringo. And, you know, this idea of it being this sort of jewel, this like secret jewel in London that no one really knew about. Um, and and sort of weaving the jacket from the resonance of this room, you know, I, I really I really get inspired by how um, we can connect, you know, things past and present with these physical creations. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a fascinating conversation. <laughs> Thanks so much. I think we actually need more records like this, or more pro- musical projects like this, because. You know, you're right about the streaming thing. There's no context. There's no tangible there, uh, experience. There's nothing tactile about it. It's just organized noise in one ear and out the other with nothing in between. I agree. And I think, you know, I I separately have this music dementia study, um, which I began a number of years ago. And it's not just music and dementia. It's music and everything. When you look at what music can do for you know, all for firstly the brain, but all these different conditions, whether it's Parkinson's, autism, schizophrenia, you know, Alzheimer's, it's like we really are a musical species more than anything else. And neurologically, music imprints on the brain deeper than any other human experience. And I feel like, you know, music, art, storytelling, it's they're all core to our humanity and how we connect and how we empathize and what inspires us. And we're living through pretty dark times right now. And I feel like the role of art is to really reflect the best of humanity and the best and the, something of our divinity. Um, and, you know, I, I look out there and I'm like, well, you know, what is there really right now that is t- sort of lifting us up in that way? Um, I mean, you know, the Greta and the climate, you know, the young climate activists, but in, in my opinion, they're sort of the rock stars of today. But otherwise, I think we need to keep raising the bar. Singer-songwriter Beatty Wolf joined us from Los Angeles. Thank you very much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Good, thanks. <laughs> Stupid chair's starting to squeak. I need some WD-40. No, you do not need WD-40. No, you're right, because I'm actually allergic to it. I had an anaphylactic uh, rea- reaction once. Oh, God. Well, it, not just that, but WD-40 is not meant to get squeaks out of things. Did you know that? Most people don't. No. Most people think WD-40 is what you use when you've got a, a squeaky hinge on your door. But WD-40 was meant to keep nuclear missiles in the United States from rusting away in their silos while waiting for the big one. Okay, yeah, okay, fine. Um, what you need is a silicone-based lubricant. By the way, the WD-40, you know what that means? Uh, no. Water displacement, 40th attempt. <laughs> oh, that's right, because they took 40 times to uh, get it right. But seeing how it's meant to shake loose rusty things, maybe you could use WD-40 on your jet lag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Or stream us live at geeksandbeats.com. Support the show on Patreon and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for a daily dose of the world's most popular podcasts with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.